This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Welcome to Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm your host, Sid Evans. And today I'm talking with someone whose music I've loved for a long time. Lucinda Williams was born in Lake Charles, Louisiana, a place she would memorialize in one of her most famous songs. But she didn't stay there for long, moving with her folks to a string of college towns where her father taught poetry and literature. Her peripatetic life and her mother's mental illness led to a sometimes difficult childhood. But music gave her an outlet, and her raw, honest lyrics have made her one of the most celebrated singer-songwriters to ever come out of the South. Despite three Grammys and countless other awards, she's never fit neatly into any particular genre, and she never wanted to. Now she has a new memoir called Don't Tell Anybody the Secrets I Told You, and a new album called Stories from a Rock and Roll Heart, her first since having a stroke back in 2020. We'll talk about all that, plus what it was like having Bruce Springsteen join her as a backup singer on this week's Biscuits and Jam. Well, Lucinda Williams, welcome to Biscuits and Jam. Thank you. I love the name of it, Biscuits and Jam. That's almost what I had for breakfast. I had toast and jam. (laughs) Well, we could call this episode Toast and Jam. No, Biscuits is better. (laughs) Well, listen, Lucinda, I've got to start out by saying thank you, because my very first date with my wife was at one of your concerts in New York City in 1999. Okay. And I think it was at the Roseland Ballroom, and it was just a magical night of music. I mean, it was an incredible show, and we've been married for 20 years now. So thank you for getting us off to the right start. I feel like I was partly responsible for a 20-year marriage. That makes me feel good. Yeah, we had a great start. So I got a lot of credit for taking her to that show. It was a wonderful show. Thank you. That's a great story. Thanks for telling me. (laughs) You know, I remember the band was so tight, and it seems like you have always surrounded yourself with just really excellent musicians. Mm -hmm. What are some of the things that you look for in a bandmate? Well, you know, probably other artists have said this, too. What's the thing that's as important as being able to play well is the camaraderie, just the connection that you have with another person. That's vital to a good band. Yeah. Personalities really matter. Oh, yeah. And just how everybody gets along. and The connection that you feel with the band members on stage, it's all of that. It's all built in. And it, it all contributes to the idea of a great band, you know, I think. Well, I've seen you a number of times and different musicians each time, a little bit different group and just always so good and so tight. And it seems like you get along. (laughs) Yeah, we do. We have great time together because it's like a family. Yeah. You're on this tour bus together. You're in a small space together for a long time. 
You got to like each other. I always compare, think of a crew on a ship. Right. It's kind of like that. You're working together. You're playing together. A lot of times having meals together. Well, I want to ask you about the new memoir, Lucinda. There's a lot of stuff in there, and it's fantastic. Thank you. It's called Don't Tell Anybody the Secrets I Told You. And it's beautifully written, and you worked on it for a long time, for, I think you said, six years. Yeah, something like that, off and on. Tell me a little bit about that title and why you wanted to talk about secrets. Yeah, I guess it's kind of an oxymoron. <laughs> or I don't know if that's the right phrase to use, but don't tell anybody the secrets I told you. I meant for that to be kind of humorous and I wanted to add some humor into the book as much as I could, you know, which I think I succeeded at. Definitely. I didn't want it to be too serious and kind of heavy because there are some heavy things in there. So I wanted to balance it out with some other things that were a little bit lighter, maybe. But the line comes from a song of mine called Metal Firecracker. And what year would that have been? In the 90s. I think we were touring behind Sweet Old World. Okay. And, yeah, it was about the bass player at that time in the band. Yeah. We had a little thing that went <laughs> sideways <laughs> when I wrote that song was after that. Well, it's a great read, and I think you did a great job of, like you said, balancing some of the tough stuff with some of the fun and some of the lightness. Yeah, I want to ask you about your hometown, Lucinda. You were born in Lake Charles, Louisiana, and you wrote a song called Lake Charles that is one of my all-time favorites. Now, I know that's a whole story on its own. Yeah, and it's in the book. Yes, about an ex of yours. But I'm wondering if you remember much about that town of Lake Charles or if you've been back there much over the years. I don't get to get back there as much as I'd like to. When I was with Clyde, the ex he speak of in that song, we had some friends who lived there who had a crawfish farm, and they would go out and catch the crawfish and the nets. They had restaurants that they would take the crawfish to, so that was what they did for a living. And we visited them a couple of times. But I haven't been able to really hang out there and get to know it like I should, really. Yeah. Because, I mean, I was born there, but we didn't live there for very long. Because my dad was teaching at McNeese. That was the college there. And usually he would teach us for a year or two at each school until he achieved tenure at the University of Arkansas. So until the University of Arkansas, he would be at a college for a year or two. But y'all moved so many times. I mean, you have a list of all the places that you lived at the very beginning of the book. And it looks like there must be 15 different places that you lived over the years. You know, I was like, instead of a military brat, a professor's brat or academic brat, I guess. Yeah. But I loved the college towns. I loved growing up in those towns, in that environment. Well, I want to ask you about your mom and your dad. There's a line in the book where you say that you inherited your musical ability from your mother and your writing ability from your father. 
And I want to ask you about your father first. His name was Miller Williams, and he was an incredibly successful poet. What are some things that he taught you about writing? Well, the one that stands out in my mind, usually over everything else, is never censor yourself, which I think is important. Well, never censor yourself also can mean just don't be so self-conscious when you're writing. You have to stand back away from it a little bit, you know. Yeah. Don't start editing yourself before you've actually put it down. Right. And he also used to say, look at it the way the listener would. You know, you need to step back from it enough to be able to get the perception that the listener would have. What was your relationship with him like when it came to your art? I know you wrote some songs based on his poetry. Yeah. I mean, would you ever share new lyrics with him and and get his feedback? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was kind of obsessed with doing that because there was a really tight bond that we had from when I was very young. And I just admired him so much, you know, looked up to him and wanted to please him. I was one of those kind of kids. I probably worried a little too much about what he thought, but that can be a good thing if it's handled the right way. But yeah, he was kind of my mentor in a sense. You know, I would show him lyrics. He would comment. Sometimes he might make a suggestion. And it was amazing sometimes He taught me a lot about just the fine art of writing. It's all in the details, you know, and how what a difference that can make. Just one word can just change the scope of things. Well, I've often thought of you as a poet. Yeah, thank you. Wow. And I'm wondering if he thought of you that way or if y'all talked about the differences between poetry and songwriting? Yeah, we did talk about that a lot. In fact, and no, he didn't look at me as a poet. I wish now, looking back, that I'd studied creative writing because oftentimes I'll write something and I'm not sure if it's a poem or not. And I sent him something one time that I thought might be a poem. And he sent back a note that said, honey, I think it wants to be a song. (laughs) And then he sent me some lines one time that he thought I might be able to put music to and make a song out of, and it didn't really work. And he used to have conversations or debates with some of his creative writing students over whether Bob Dylan was a poet or a songwriter. And these talks would go on late into the night over several glasses of Jim Beam. And it was decided, my father was adamant about it, the fact that Bob Dylan was a songwriter, not a poet. Well, and I'm guessing y'all never really resolved that debate. Yeah, well, it was resolved as far as he was concerned, because he just <laughs> said, no, Bob Dylan's a songwriter, he's not a poet. Well, let me ask you about your mom. Your mother was a troubled person in a lot of ways, Mm -hmm. and she seemed to have a lot of problems with alcohol and maybe depression. But tell me about the music piece. I mean, how did she express that? 
Yeah. Well, when she and my father met, she was a music major at LSU, and she had studied piano since she was about four years old, I think. And so there was always a piano in the house and sheet music, which I was drawn to all the time, but I never took lessons. But I would sit at the piano and just kind of pretend and try to figure out how to play it. I was fascinated. And eventually my mother gave me her zither. It looked like an auto harp, but you put it on your lap and you play it both of your thumbs kind of strumming it. Well, your fingers also, but you play it on your lap. So she encouraged your music. Yeah, and my dad did too. Once they saw that there was something going on because I was always drawn to musical instruments and they got me a Magnus chord organ one time when I was about 11 or 12 or something. Because it had the sheet music, you could prop it up so it'd be right over the keys. So the notes on the page would correspond with the different keys. So it allowed you to play without knowing how to read music. She was real supportive. She loved the arts. She loved music and she read all the time. She had all the books of the day, you know, the psychology self-help books, which were coming out in a big way back then. Like, I'm okay, you're okay. Yeah. <laughs> and she would talk about Carl Jung and all this real heady stuff. So I learned a lot about psychology and therapy from her because we would talk about all that stuff a lot. And my dad, too. He was more into Sigmund Freud. I mean, the books that you were exposed to and the writers, it's pretty incredible. I mean, there's a moment yeah. in the book where you go to visit Flannery O'Connor in Milledgeville, uh, Georgia. Yeah. With your father. I mean, what an incredible I thing. know. Yeah. I was very young, you know. I wasn't even into my teens yet, I think. Maybe eight or nine. I'm not sure. But she raised peacocks. And my dad, I have this story in my head from the way he told it to me which was that we were living in Macon, Georgia, and he drove to Milledgeville, and he took me with him. And he had a meeting set up with her at her farmhouse there. And we went out there, we got there, and it was just a big old, old-fashioned kind of farmhouse-looking place. It's very Southern-looking. And he knocked on the door, and her housekeeper came to the door and said, Miss Flannery is not quite ready to see you yet. Y'all can wait out here. And so we sat on the steps and waited, and we saw the Venetian blondes go pulled down, and that was her office. Because she had real strict hours during which time she was writing, and you couldn't disturb her. And apparently we got there when she was still working, so we couldn't go in yet. So we waited out there, and... Then the housekeeper came out and said, okay, Miss Flannery is ready now. You can come in. And my dad went in and sat with her. And they left me outside to play. And <laughs> apparently I ran around and chased the peacocks. <laughs> <laughs> I like to think that I absorbed some of her Southern writing brilliance by osmosis. 
if nothing else. I don't know, something. It was a spiritual thing for me when I think about it, almost. I mean, I just regard her as the queen of Southern literature. Well, it seems you did absorb it. It just took a while to yeah. do that because you became a avid reader of her work. And mm-hmm. there just seems to be so many parallels between her stories and your songwriting. Thank you. Thanks for saying that. Without a doubt. Kind of, you know, a little wild, a little out there. Yes. On the fringe. <laughs> yeah. I like to write about people on the fringe of society which is, of course, what her strength was. And she was so empathetic to her characters, which I like to think I am. Definitely. Hmm. Well, Lucinda, I want to talk about food for a minute. You talk about, in the book, your grandma day. Mm-hmm. And you remembered her banana pudding. Tell me about her cooking and what you remember about it. Well, she had fig trees out in the backyard and of course pecan trees and she always had some kind of thing that she'd made that day when we'd go over there in the late afternoons my mother would drop the kids off sometimes to stay with her and my grandfather just to babysit us sometimes and I mean grandma's cook in the kitchen isn't that what they do (laughs) so that's what she would do she always had coffee going always coffee it was like a ritual almost. You walk through the back door and you want some coffee? Oh, yeah, I'd love a cup. For somebody to say no, they didn't want coffee because it kept them up all night or something. I never heard anybody say that. Nowadays they do. It was always on and people drank it all day and night. The kids, we had what they called coffee milk, which was basically strong coffee with a lot of milk and a lot of sugar. Well, they were just trying to get you started. I guess we were weaned on it, you know, and, you know, that's probably where the trouble started right there. (laughs) After the break, I'll talk more with Lucinda Williams about her new book, her new album, and having Bruce Springsteen as a backup singer. Welcome back to Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm Sid Evans, and today I'm talking with the Grammy-winning singer-songwriter and now author, Lucinda Williams. I got to ask you about a place, Lucinda, I know you spent a lot of time in New Orleans, and there was a place that you talked about called Buster Holmes's Bar and Restaurant. Oh, yeah. Which was kind of a legendary spot. What are some of your memories of that place? Well... Yeah, Buster Holmes. He was considered the king of red beans and rice. And my friends and I, when I was in high school in New Orleans, we would go there after school a lot of times down in the quarter. And there was a little window. You'd walk up to the window and they would slide open the little screen on the window and you'd order. It was only 25 cents. You could get a plate of red beans and rice with French bread on the side, huge big plate of it. And we'd get those and we would have that. I think we just sat on the sidewalk and ate it or something. And it was really good. <laughs> well, and it seemed like that place was really kind of a hot spot. I mean, I think Louis Armstrong went there back in the day and all sorts of musicians and artists and all kinds of people 
I need to read up on it more because I didn't know about that. Yeah, it had quite a history. Yeah, it's just this little neighborhood place, you know. I mean, I don't even remember it as a restaurant necessarily because they didn't have tables and chairs and everything. The way I remember it anyway was just one of those kind of, you know, go up to the window, like a takeout sort of place. Right, right. Well, Lucinda, you spent a lot of time in New Orleans during some key years in your life. I mean, you were really Mm -hmm. developing as a musician, as an artist. You were playing a lot of gigs kind of for the first time, a lot of gigs Mm -hmm. in a row. And I'm wondering how influential that city was when it came to your music. Well, I think it was very influential. I mean, maybe not directly, but certainly indirectly, Mm -hmm. you know. Not just New Orleans, but a lot of places I lived. I always tried to search out little dives and little spots, you know, and discover unknown or lesser known musicians and that sort of thing. And, of course, in New Orleans, you could sing on the street. You could set up and play music on the street corner for tips and that sort of thing. A lot of what was inspiring me was what was going on at home, though, too, which was my dad's poetry and his creative writing students who became friends of mine, and I would hang out with a lot. I lived in a big rambling house one time with some of the other creative writing students of my dad's and spent a summer one time in that house. And so I was heavily influenced by what was going on with them at the time, the culture and all that at that time in the 60s, you know, because they would have been in their 20s and I was a teen. So they were discovering some of the music that influenced me a lot. And they would bring the albums over. So there's really just this mashup of writers and musicians. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But like I remember one of the key moments that stands out in my mind is when my father had a student come over to the house one day because they had a meeting set up and the guy came over and he walked in and he had a copy of Highway 61 Revisited, the Bob Dylan album. And it had just come out and he'd gone out and gotten it and he was waving it around and saying, you've got to listen to this. You've got to listen to this. You know, I didn't know who Bob Dylan was yet at that time. But he came in and he set the album down and went in another room to talk to my dad. And I looked at the album, I picked it up, and right off the bat, I fell in love with this young man on the cover with this soft, kind of wavy, curly hair and this Triumph T-shirt. And it was just this mystique. There was something about that photograph. And, you know, who is this guy? And then I put it on and listened to it. I was only 12, but it captured me. I didn't understand all the words. It's all right, mom, only bleeding and songs like that, you know. But I had heard so much poetry and read so much at that point that it didn't really surprise me. It was intriguing and confusing at the same time. But I was used to that because of all the poets I'd been around trying to absorb Allen Ginsberg and writers like that. So here's Bob Dylan. What he had done was to take traditional folk music 
which is what I started with, really. You know, people like Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger take that traditional folk music and absorb it with poetry. The literary world meets the folk music world. That was what it was in my mind when I first heard him. So it made perfect sense to me. And on some level in my little 12 and a half year old brain, I said, this is what I want to do. Mm. This makes sense. This is what I'm going to do and what I want to do. I want to look like Joan Baez and make music like Bob Dylan. (laughs) (laughs) Because I loved her too. Yeah, that's great. And that was the time back then. You know, this was the height of the folk music boom. Right. You talk about places that had a big impact on you. You also spent some time in Baton Rouge. And there's a beautiful song of yours called Bus to Baton Rouge. And it almost sounds like a love song, but it also talks mm-hmm. about some pretty tough stuff. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about your relationship with that town. Well, when I think about Baton Rouge, I think about my mother's parents. And I think a lot about my mother and the problems she was having and her relationship with her parents and everything. And her father was a Methodist minister, as was my father's father. So both of my grandfathers were Methodist ministers, one in Arkansas and one in Louisiana. And, you know, I think just based on what I've heard growing up and everything, there was a lot of repression when she was growing up. Repression, which led to depression. Just fear-based things. Fear of God, you know, all of that. So she grew up with a lot of that crap. (laughs) And, of course, my father was trying to help her get over all that. That's probably where the resentment came from, from her parents towards my father. That was part of it was my dad resented them trying to fill her head with all this stuff that he didn't believe in and didn't think was right. Lucinda, when you're writing about some of the tougher parts of your story, some of the things that your mom went through, both in songs that you're writing and in the book, is there a kind of catharsis to be able to put it down on paper, to put it out there in the world? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely feel that. I might feel that more when I'm writing a song for some reason. Writing a book is such a different animal. It's kind of like writing in a journal, except somebody's looking over your shoulder, (laughs) So before we were talking about not being self-conscious as a writer, but I had to do that when I was writing the book, which made it more difficult. Or I had to use whatever talent I had as a writer to make sure just to word it in such a way so that it didn't offend someone or hurt their feelings and that kind of thing. So in that way, it was difficult. And there's still stuff in the book that I worry about that I should have worded differently or maybe not put in there. There are things that I forgot to put in there that I wish I'd remembered. Well, it's out there now. (laughs) Too late. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Lucinda, listen, not only do you have a new book out, you've got a new album out. Mm -hmm. Um, 
which is incredible. It's called Stories from a Rock and Roll Heart. And for someone who's been through so much and who's not afraid to go to dark places, mm-hmm. this album seems lighter to yeah. me. Like you were really having fun. Is is that fair? Yes, it is. That's a good, that's perceptive. Yeah. There was a kind of a vibe and feeling as we were making this album. I say we because I was co-producing with my husband and Ray Kennedy, who also engineered. And there was a feeling of coming back and being strong on different levels, personal levels and universal levels. We moved to Nashville and bought a house in East Nashville, and then a tornado blew through town and took the roof off of the front porch. (laughs) You know, I had my stroke. It was almost biblical. Right. (laughs) A lot of the songs kind of took on this feeling of that sense of coming back and carrying on, moving forward. Well, it does that for sure, and particularly in the title track, Rock and Roll Heart, which sounds like a fun one to play live. Yeah, it is. And of course, you had a pretty good backup singer on this song. Oh, yeah. What's your connection to Bruce Springsteen? How did y'all end up working together on this? And I still can't get over that. Every time I hear his voice, I just get so excited. I'm such a fan. Well, my husband, Tom, has been a big fan of Bruce's for years and years, and Another person who got involved in some of the songwriting and production was Jesse Mallon, who's an artist based in New York City. And he had a band called Degeneration. And so he's got this kind of punk rock ethic. And I like to think he brought some of that to the table when we were working together. And we were sitting around working on that song and some other ones. And Tom said, wouldn't it be great if we could get Bruce on a couple of these songs? And Jesse, who knows everybody in New York City, and he's kind of the mayor of the Lower East Side, you know, he said, well, I think I can get a hold of some of Bruce's people and try to make that happen. And sure enough, he went back to New York and pulled some strings and talked to the right people. And Bruce said, yes, he'd like to do it. Bruce and I had met before And so we had a connection there. And Tom took me on one of our first dates to see Bruce's show when he was touring Dustin Devil's tour. Okay. He played acoustically, and it was just magnificent. Well, he's just the perfect voice to have on there in so many ways. Yeah. That's when you know you got a rock and roll And his story, too, Mm -hmm. where he came from. It's a great thing that y'all put together. His book is great. I read some other memoirs before I started writing mine, and his was one of them. And I thought he just did a really good job. Yeah. 
He said it took him about seven years to write his book. Well, you got him beat. You did it a year faster. There's another song, Lucinda, that's called Where the Song Will Find Me. And this one is a little more somber. You've been a songwriter for most of your life now, and I'm wondering if this was a little bit about the thrill that you get when you write a good one. Yeah, it's about basically just allowing the muse to come in, if you will. The inspiration, maybe. Actually, my husband and manager, Tom, brought that into the table. He came up with the idea for that and the very beginning lines. We didn't set out to write together, but it just kind of happened organically. He started showing me things that he'd written and ideas he had, and they were good, you know? Turns out he had some creative writing talent hiding in there. He would show me some stuff, and he was kind of shy about it at first. I'd look at it and kind of add to it and then come up with the melody and arrangement and everything. And that was one of those. I know they will find me like they always do. Well, it sounds kind of hopeful, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You have a postscript at the very end of the book, and you were talking about living a good life. Mm-hmm. And this was kind of a late addition. What motivated you to want to add that? Well, a lot of times I'm just sitting and something comes to me and I just start writing. And it was kind of one of those stream of consciousness things, I guess. And... I didn't intend to put it in there, but Tom saw it and thought it was really clever and creative and everything. So he showed it to the editor and they put it in there. (laughs) I think maybe I was trying to write a poem when I was writing that. I loved it and I love that it found its way into the book. Thank you. Well, Lucinda, I just have one more question for you. Okay. What does it mean to you to be Southern? Everything. I'm glad I'm Southern. I love the South. I love everything about the South. Well, there are some dark things connected with the South. I don't like it. I resent the fact that Northerners or Yankees, as I call them usually, (laughs) if I'm not talking to one, I say Yankee. Yankees think that all Southerners are stupid and ignorant and racist. I don't like that. That pisses me off really bad. I was doing a performance one time where I would get interviewed and then I would play some songs and the audience could ask questions. And this one woman leaned forward and said, you know, I really want to go down south and visit. Is it safe? I didn't even answer her. I didn't know what to say. She was afraid to go to the south because of all the things she'd read and heard about it. Do you feel like you found a home in Nashville? Yeah, I like Nashville. When I first came here, I ran into some things I didn't like about it. Like people would ask me what church I went to. I didn't like that, you know. Not do you go to church? What church do you go to? You know, and the music row mentality, that kind of cookie cutter 
idea of writing a song. Yeah. I quickly became sort of on the fringes of things in Nashville, like along with Steve Earle, who I got to know. He ended up, of course, producing my car wheels on a Gravel Road album. But a lot of artists have come to Nashville and kicked up their heels. Willie Nelson, he came here and he felt like an outlaw and he moved to Austin, Texas. That kind of thing, it's kind of still here. The country music industry could do with some changes. Well, I think you like the fringes. I do. If it's handled the right way, you can find some strength in it. You know, it gives you something to rebel against. And I found rebellion to be a good tonic for if you're feeling bored or listless, find something to rebel against. (laughs) Well, I'm glad you're still rebelling and I'm glad you're still producing great albums. And I'm so glad that you came out with this book. And thanks so much for being on Biscuits and Jam. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Really enjoyed it, Lucinda. Thanks, me too. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Lucinda Williams. Southern Living is based in Birmingham, Alabama. Be sure to follow Biscuits and Jam on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And we'd love your feedback. If you could rate this podcast and leave us a review, we'd appreciate it. You can also find us online at southernliving.com slash biscuitsandjam. Our theme song is by Sean Watkins of Nickel Creek. I hope you'll join us next week for my conversation with the Country Music Hall of Famer, Winona Judd. We'll see you then. Mm